Good evening. We're so glad you could join us tonight. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and we're really delighted to have all of you here tonight for the third installment of our Talking About Race lecture series. This lecture series would not have been possible and continues to be made possible by our partner, the Open Society Institute of Baltimore. <laughs> so please give them a hand. Now, I hesitate because I actually had the honor to be one of the uh, first board members of that uh, group, and I'm just so pleased that we've been able to continue the partnership. We kicked off this series this summer, and it's been very successful, and as you can see tonight, well attended. And I couldn't think of a better time for this third lecture to focus on schools and the classroom. And we have two very special guests to help us answer the question, can we talk about how race affects our classrooms? And we're very honored to have those two special guests to guide us through what we hope will be, and we're sure will be, a dynamic conversation. The president of Spelman College and noted author, Beverly Daniel Tatum. And the former superintendent of schools in Philadelphia, David Hornbeck. With this special evening, we have our special guest, the director of the Open Society Institute in Baltimore, Ms. Diana Morris. Well, thank you, Carla. It is really wonderful to see everybody here. And of course, when our uh, speakers come up, there'll be three more seats in the front here, so. Don't forget to grab those seats. Um, and I want to say thank you so very much for joining us tonight. And many of you have been here earlier in the session. And uh, we look forward to having other, uh, other events in this series where I hope you also will come. Um, as Carla said, this is actually the fourth event in a year-long series that we've been having. And we're so very proud and happy to be partnering with the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Um, it's clear that this discussion about race, which we're trying to approach from a variety of perspectives, is one that's not only important, but really is one in which the community is very eager to get engaged. So we're really delighted with this response tonight, and the, we really hope that this dialogue will continue to go on. In fact, as Sherilyn Eiffel said at one of our earlier uh, programs in this series, it's really very important that we talk about this in small groups throughout the region. Uh, and become more comfortable talking about race. I want to suggest to you that um, you look at one of our new websites. We have a website, www.storiesaboutrace. And you can read their uh, uh, stories that people are just voluntarily uh, sharing with us and leave your own story there as well. They're very personal and moving stories about race, so please consider submitting a story of your own. We do want to thank a number of the very special and generous sponsors who, have, uh, who are making this series possible. Uh, please join me in thanking Hassan and Amy Murphy, the Reed family, Delegate Sandy Rosenberg, and Dr. James and Robin Wood. <laughs> now, 
Now tonight we'll have the opportunity to discuss how race affects our classroom, and that of course is a topic that really touches all of us and the next generation. We're very concerned with how that generation feels appreciated and supported by us and how they will embrace the future. This is a topic that we at the Open Society Institute consider every day when we do our education and youth development work. And tonight we'll have the opportunity to discuss the many aspects of race in the classroom. But one prominent theme will be the fact that many of our classrooms in Baltimore are now about 95% African-American. And that's in a city that's approximately 65% African-American. Now, Baltimore is a city that has proudly considered itself neither part of the South nor part of the North. And it actually decided to desegregate uh, its prestigious engineering course at Polytech Institute in response to black protests two years before the U.S. Supreme Court mandated desegregation in public schools across the system, across the country. And following the Supreme Court's decision, the Baltimore School Board decided to comply as quickly as possible, while many major cities employed a lot of tactics to delay compliance. So Baltimore was actually the first district south of the Mason-Dixon line to comply with the desegregation order. But what's happened since 1954, and where are we today? Ironically, many still consider Baltimore to be one of the most segregated cities. And in 2009, this is especially true of our classrooms. Have we returned to segregated schools? What has occurred to bring us to this situation? And what impact does this have for our community and for our region? These are some of the questions that we hope to ask tonight. Now, before I turn to our speakers, I want to just tell you that the next event we'll be hosting is How Does White America Talk About Race? We'll have Rich Benjamin and Tim Wise on December 1 at 7 p.m., so please mark that in your calendars. I also hope that you'll be listening to WYPR's Maryland Morning, uh, which is featuring a segment entitled Across the Divide, Stories About Race in Baltimore. And this is a series of personal stories told from people right here in our community about their experience with race and how it changed their lives. But right now, I'd like to now introduce our wonderful uh, panelists for tonight's conversation, and I'll ask them to come to the stage now. We've designed these programs to be a series of conversations about race, and therefore tonight, as you see, we have three comfortable chairs so people will get in conversation mood. And we've asked Joe Jones to serve as our moderator. He'll throw out the first question this evening, but he'll also participate in the conversation. He'll also lead a question and answer uh, session toward the end of the conversation. Tonight, if you've been here before, we're going to do the questions a little bit differently. Uh, you will all get um, cards. And right before the question and answer period, our staff will collect the cards from you. So if you have a question, please do put it down on one of these uh, cards. So quick introduction. Joe Jones, our moderator tonight, is the vice chair of the Open Society Institute Board. He's also the CEO of the Center for Urban Families, uh, which you all might know has, is having an important ribbon-cutting 
this week in Baltimore. But he's also a national leader in workforce development and in the responsible fatherhood movement. Now turning to our two speakers who are so thrilled are here with us tonight. In 2002, uh, Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum became the ninth president of Spelman College, which is a private... It's a private uh, liberal arts, historically black college for, um, for women. Dr. Tatum is widely recognized as a scholar, a teacher, race relations expert, and leader in education. She's a clinical psychologist by training, and her areas of research include racial identity development and the role of race in the classroom. She's been the recipient of numerous honorary degrees, and in 2005, Dr. Tatum was awarded the prestigious Brock International Prize in Education for her innovative leadership in the field. Her best-selling titles include Can We Talk About Race and Other Conversations in an Era of School Resegregation and Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race. She's also the author of Assimilation Blues, Black Families in a White Community. We're also very pleased to have with us David Hornbeck, who has spent his career as an educator, an activist, an organizer, a lawyer, and an author. As an educator, David served four years as Pennsylvania's Executive Deputy Secretary for Education, 12 years as Maryland's State Superintendent of Schools, and six years as superintendent of the schools in Philadelphia. As a lawyer at Hogan and Hartson, he was the principal architect of Kentucky's sweeping education reform legislation. Working nationally, he's been a senior educator, uh, advisor to the Business Roundtable, New American Schools, and the National Center on Education and the Economy. And he served as co-director of the National Alliance for Restructuring Education. Finally, David's second book, uh, has recently been published. It's Choosing Ex Excellence in Public Schools. Where there's a will, there's a way. So please join me in welcoming these panelists tonight. Great. How's everybody? Well, we sure picked the easy subject to talk about tonight, didn't we? And uh, judging by the turnout, I think Dr. Hayden actually advertised this as a free swine flu shot. <laughs> uh, we are really excited to uh, have our guests join us here in Baltimore. You know, it's always easy to come into town and talk about stuff and then run right out. You can stir up all kinds of stuff, right? Uh, but to get started, and we're going to spend uh, going to spend a little bit of time uh, with a discussion uh, with our guests. My role is really to stay out of their way. Uh, maybe I should be between them, you know, talking about race. But uh, if you, as Diana uh, had suggested, make sure that if you have questions that you write them on your card and then you begin to pass them uh, to the end of the aisle and then we've picked up so that we can kind of manage our Q&A. But let's just get started by... Uh, uh, Diana, uh, had, she had noted that the Supreme Court made its historic Brown versus the Board of Education decision to integrate public schools in 1954. Uh, so to start, uh, to start our discussion, I wonder if both of you could talk about your own personal experiences with race in your classrooms growing up, and perhaps you can comment on what the differences are since that time. 
I'm happy to start. Um, I was born in 1954, and I often like to say that because I think of my life as having really been influenced in many important ways by the Brown versus Board of Education decision. But I was born in Tallahassee, Florida, and my father was at the time a professor at Florida A&M, which is a historically black university in Tallahassee. And even though I was born in September, several months after the May decision, at the time of my birth, my father was trying to pursue his doctorate. He, had, uh, he went as an undergraduate to Howard University. Both my parents went to Howard. And then uh, my dad got a master's of fine art at the University of Iowa, which I imagine was an interesting experience in the 50s. But, um, but then teaching, he was an art professor at Florida A&M, wanted to get a doctorate in art education, which was a program offered at Florida State University, also in Tallahassee. But even though it was after Brown, he was not able to go to FSU because it was still segregated. And the state of Florida dealt with their obligation to provide access by paying his transportation to Pennsylvania. And uh, he actually got his doctorate at Penn State University. So when he finished his degree in 1957, he was not keen to stay in Florida. <coughs> and uh, we moved to Massachusetts in 1958, where he became the first African-American professor at Bridgewater State College. And I grew up in a small town, Bridgewater, Massachusetts, which is about 30 miles outside of Boston. So that experience, um, you know, it's not a surprise, perhaps, I write about race. <laughs> but I, you know, I grew up in this small town where there are very few black families. I, most of my educational experience, I was one of few black children in the school. But it was um, at a time when, uh, as I was in high school, for example, I think about, I graduated from high school in 1971. So in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a lot going on around school desegregation, particularly in the Boston area. It was a very difficult process, as you may recall, if you're old enough to remember that. Um, you know, Boston, there was a lot of violence associated with around school busing. Yes, around busing in, uh, in Boston. And so that was something that I was very aware of, but sort of as an outside observer, because in my little town, you know, there was no busing. You know, we all went to the same school, and there just weren't very many black people in the town. I'll stop there. <laughs> well, and feel free to take the mics off if it's a little It, it might be a little easier. My experience was a good deal different than <laughs> well, Doc, Dr. Tatum's. <laughs> uh, um, among other things, I was already 13 years old by the time uh, by the time 1954 came and was in the eighth grade in Longview, Texas. And those of you who know East Texas at all know that um, in every respect, it's really no different than the way Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia was at the time. And so as far as I know, in 1954, um, when the Brown decision came down, uh, it wouldn't surprise me to go back and to discover that there was no conversation about it. In, um, in Longview at all. Um, I never went to a school until I went to seminary in New York City in 1963 um, in which I was in school with um, an African American. Um, there was one um, African 
who was in school in a little Presbyterian college I went to in East Texas, but, uh, but, but no African Americans. And in fact, uh, speaking of busing, um, Judge Justice was his name in East Texas. Um, that's, that was his real name. <laughs> and he died about three weeks ago. And he was the one uh, sitting on the district court there who ordered that the schools in Longview and Kilgore and Tyler and Gladewater had to be integrated. And that was in 1971, um, a good deal after, of course, Brown. And on the day that school opened, um, in the happily in the bus barn, uh, the buses all had bombs put in them, and they were blown up. And so... What I discovered uh, was that uh, was the invisibility of um, of people who were African American. Um, I didn't go to school with them. I didn't go to church with them. I didn't shop with them. I I simply didn't see them, uh, despite the fact that, um, as with many other southern towns, uh, there were very substantial numbers of African Americans who who lived in Longview. And I recounted the story the other day. The question was put to us a little bit differently. How old were we when we had our first encounter? And this, again, I discovered that uh, Dr. Tatum, I think she said, was three. And I was uh, 17. Um, But it was at college in the fall of 1959 when I I first went to college. And it just hit me one day that all of us were – calling the guy who was the custodian in our dorm, Henry, and the guy who was the custodian in the student union building, Mr. Jones. And um, that was the first time that it had kind of penetrated in a distinctive way in my head uh, this insidious uh, divide. And goodness knows I didn't begin to understand it at that point. Uh, but it was it was the it was an important beginning of of a journey for me that continues uh, to try to understand the role that race plays in in our life together. And of course, having served both as state superintendent here and then six sometimes tumultuous years in Philadelphia, uh, I discovered a lot more about the way in which these issues play them play themselves out. And so, uh, given that, you know, that experience, what do you see as as differences since that time? Well, my own view is that there is a, I mean, the single most important difference in some ways is the level of consciousness that has has unfolded. Including um, this conversation. Including this conversation. I mean, I really want to offer my own... Uh, thanks and congratulations to OSI for uh, for conducting this this conversation, um, and and that's that's really that's really very important. And I think that um, I think that lots and lots and lots of of children, young people, um, and even some of us who are older. Um, see each other differently today. In the first place, we see each other. And, and that was, uh, that, that's a huge, huge uh, difference. 
But then we've also moved to the to the point, um, and I, and I must say there are many things about the No Child Left Behind Act with which I have disagreements, and and with the administration out of which it came in a sense. But the the one thing I can think of that I really applaud uh, in that framework was the decision within that act to disaggregate performance data. Um, because up until that time, <clears throat> um, in nearly every, if not every state in America, the performance of uh, children living in poverty, children of color, children with disabilities, children whose first language is in English, were the, the, their performance was hidden within the average. Uh. And uh, with the requirement of disaggregation of data in NCLB, um, a, a new thing emerged. We, everybody knew it was there, uh, but it wasn't acknowledged. And that's why you had superintendents every year uh, in a position to be able to come out and talk about their improving test scores at the time uh, because uh, you could, if you drove the scores of the kids who were wealthier and whiter and more English speaking and so on up, you could you could hide how poorly you were doing um, with the others. And and so it is I think it is that recognition, it's the consciousness, it's the identification of of uh, telling it ever so slightly more like it really is that is the huge difference that has taken place. I would agree that there are some differences. It's, you know, I told the story of my father at um, and his experience with Florida and Florida State in, you know, the 50s. In, uh, I left Florida in 1958 as a four-year-old and came back to Tallahassee in 2008 as a keynote speaker at Florida State. And that was, um, you know, a very interesting experience to... Ha- to come tell that story about my father at Florida State and then have them show the statue that they have erected there in honor of the students who first desegregated Mm. the university. I mean, clearly attitudes have changed in a lot of ways. Uh, I told the story about my father being the first African-American professor at Bridgewater State College in the 50s. Today, Bridgewater State College has a black president. So, you know, the, um, a lot has changed, and the United States has a black president, right. you know. <laughs> a lot has changed. But, uh, and Florida went for Barack Obama. <laughs> um, but in terms of day-to-day existence in schools, a lot is similar. You know, there's still a huge inequity in terms of school funding. There's still, um, you know, there was a period of time right after, uh, well, not right after Brown, but, you know, in the 70s, during the, actually during the Lyndon Johnson years, uh, where there was rapid improvement in terms of, a rapid focus on school desegregation, particularly in the South, when the uh, uh, Department of Education basically said we will withhold funds unless you comply with the law and you saw a rapid uh, move toward a desegregation in southern schools in particular. 
But in the Nixon years, with the changes in the Supreme Court, there were decisions that led to uh, policies of what, moving away from busing, moving back toward neighborhood schools. And because our neighborhoods are still segregated, you see a resegregation of schools. And to the extent that you still have schools where there's high concentrations of poverty, limited um, access to well-prepared teachers, limited opportunities for um, educational improvement, some of the things that we might have been uh, talking about in the 50s, what really drove the push towards school desegregation was not simply a desire to sit next to white children, but it was about access to resources. And that access to resources is still an issue. Thinking about your personal experiences, you know, growing up and your academic training, the possibilities that, that exist for us today, are there things that you have done? I mean, each of you have uh, led or are leading major educational institutions. Dr. Hornback, you've, uh, you know, you've, you've run systems, uh, head of Spelman. Are there things that you do to kind of mitigate these issues that we're talking about in terms of race in the classroom, given the kind of power positions that you all have had, trying to make the playing field a little bit more even, and maybe some things that we wouldn't necessarily know if we weren't having this discussion, and I, and I wouldn't, wasn't asking this question. Well, I would, my, from my vantage point as um, a college president and at a historically black college uh, like Spelman, one of the things that I see is that, you know, Spelman is a very selective institution. We had last year close to 6,000 applications for 550 spaces. Mm -hmm. So the students who come to Spelman are well prepared. They are the best and the brightest from their high schools. But many of them are coming from schools that have been underfunded. And so they may not have had access to the kinds of um, resources that you have in well-funded suburban schools. On the other hand, we have quite a few students who, coming, who are coming from well-funded suburban schools, too. So, you know, there's a diversity of high school experience. But what I can say universally about our students is that they're all very talented. But one of the things that... Um, people sometimes uh, assume, particularly about a school like Spelman, because we do have such great students, is that they are coming from families or neighborhoods with resources. And that is not the case. Actually, 44% of our students are Pell Grant eligible, which means, which is actually the highest percentage of any selective liberal arts college in the country, mm. outside of Berea College, which is you know, serving Appalachian students. Um, and so when you look at that, what that tells you is that there are a lot of students who have overcome great odds to be in college and often first generation in their families to go to school and are really uh, challenged, particularly by this economy, to find the funds they need to be in school. And that, um, you know, when you look at the legacy of racism in our society, the economic uh, disadvantage that persists as a consequence of policy decisions and longstanding uh, institutional racism in our society. You see that every day in the struggle that students have to finance their education. Dr. Hornback? I'm trying to think through whether I remember more instances actually where we failed to do some of those things than where we succeeded, one of the first here in Maryland, which has changed now, but there's still a big problem in, in my judgment. Um, way back in 1980-81, some of you will remember a lawsuit that happened to be called Somerset versus Hornbeck, 
and I was the named defendant because of my position, but decided to, in effect, to be the chief witness for the plaintiffs in that lawsuit, and spent... You were snitching. Well, I... <laughs> I was. I spent 16 hours on the witness stand trying to plead guilty, and uh, they, they, they wouldn't let me. Um, but um, the judge at the trial level um, ruled in favor of the plaintiffs um, in a really... Um, remarkable decision. It went up on appeal, and a um, wealthier subdivision uh, majority of the highest court here um, then overturned that. Uh, And it was 30 years, 20 years before we finally got the Thornton um, uh, legislation uh, through. And in fact, I think I'm right that Maryland is is the only state where legislation did get through without an immediate court order behind it. I I think that's right. Um, But uh, nevertheless, we still have a situation uh, here in in Baltimore, for example, where there's not nearly enough money for kids to spend as much time in summer school as they need to if kids need extra time or in extended day programs. I have two sons who are principals in Baltimore City Schools today, and they're always fighting for a next nickel to, uh, especially in one of the schools that's a small school, uh, to have enough to provide for after-school programs for for their kids. And uh, I'm quite certain that the, um, the schools in other places don't have to fight for that. On the other hand, in Philadelphia, we made a decision that full-day kindergarten was good for kids, and uh, and one of the nice little things about being a superintendent is that you you can decide once in a while mm-hmm. X is going to happen and then just bulldog it so hard mm-hmm. and not let anybody get away with it. Uh, uh, to the contrary. Now, there's a different piece of, of this, too, that I want to mention. It's one thing to provide more after school and uh, seek more equitable um, uh, and adequate funding and um, have full-day kindergarten and so on and so forth. Um, but but there is at the same time in school districts with um, especially large numbers of um, African-American uh, staff and um, kids, um, uh, um, the, the race conversation while some people may think that it takes place because there are lots of white people and lots of black people all in the same buildings with one another every day, it generally doesn't. Mm. One of the most interesting things that... I want you to know you took one of my questions. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, It's it's a huge, huge issue. And and one of the things that we did in in Philadelphia, again, possible if, if you happen to be the superintendent, is that we had a week-long session with what we referred to as our um, executive council. It was the 35 most senior people um, um, among the 30,000 employees that we we had in the system. And for uh, either four or five years running, um, we we centered the, uh, the theme of those conversations uh, were in part centered around issues of race. Um, and we had we broke up into race alike conversations and mixed conversations and 
there were angry words and there were tears and um, there were instances in which we analyzed whether um, African-American regional superintendents were harsher or less harsh in their evaluations of principals and tried to get underneath that and figure out uh, why it was or it was not so. And, and I won't begin to tell you that at the end of even that many times and doing it so persistently over a long period of time that everybody walked off arm in arm with one another, loving each other and, you know, singing Kumbaya and, and all that. I mean, it was still very, very difficult. But it convinced me that it was at least an example of the really hard kinds of conversation that need to take place. And one of the places that I think it's important for it to take place is is in your workplace and around the issues that that you struggle with on a daily basis because it's a little less uh, easy under those circumstances to let it drift off into theology or philosophy or uh, opinion or sentiments because you can tend to bring people back with data and with the knowledge that that school at the corner of 13th and Franklin did X uh, and there's no denying that. So it's another way that opportunities of leadership in places give mm-hmm. you to, to work on those issues. So are, 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 are teachers, you know, are they given uh, opportunities to discuss race and training? Is there examples of ongoing uh, staff development where race is a central part of, you know, teacher development or administrative, administrative development so that we have a way of putting leadership into our institutions to kind of, you know, manage these conversations or bring them to the fore. There are examples of that, and I think that uh, the example that David just gave is one, and one of the things that's, uh, I think, important about that example is that it was an ongoing dialogue. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes the mistake that schools make is that they'll do these, you know, what I like to call one-day wonders, you know, where, uh, you know, some big-name person is invited to come and speak, uh, and I, I will confess, I've done I've some of these them. myself. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a few, you know, uh, where you come and you do a workshop and you, you know, share and people get excited, but then there's no follow-through. Mm-hmm. My most satisfying uh, experience of professional development really goes back to some the years I spent in Massachusetts. I had the opportunity to work with uh, teachers in the greater Boston area who were participating in what's known as the METGO program. Uh, METGO is a voluntary desegregation program established in Boston probably 40 years ago where kids from Boston, black kids typically are bused into suburban communities like Wellesley, Newton, et cetera, that surround Boston and um, you know, it was one way of dealing with the tensions around desegregation in Boston. But one of the challenges in that setting was that the kids, the black kids who were being bused into those schools often were underperforming in the suburban schools. Mm-hmm. You know, their parents put them in the program because they wanted access to the resources and the educational opportunity, but often the children were um, socially isolated and, and just, I think, suffered from lowered expectations on the part of teachers, et cetera. I had the opportunity uh, in the mid-90s to work with several superintendents in the greater Boston area to develop a professional development course, which was called Effective Anti-Racist Classroom Practices for All Students. Hmm. 
And it was a it was a semester long experience, and uh, teachers came together, you know, every Wednesday afternoon to read and write and talk about um, understanding their own socialization as racial beings. You know, what were the messages that we all learn and take in, and then project in our classrooms, and how do we think about um, expectations, and how do we respond when, you know, if a, if a black kid is not doing his homework, do you call his parents or not? And what, I, what we found was that a lot of times white teachers, and most of these teachers were white in the greater Boston area, would say, you know, well, you know, his mom is working hard and she might not be home. And, you know, have a whole set of assumptions about whether she would be receptive to a phone call. Whereas when a white child is underperforming, you know, you call the parent, you don't think twice about it. So there are... Um, what we found was that week after week after week of creating space for this conversation was a very powerful tool for teachers to look at their own practice, to begin to question their own assumptions, and, in fact, to see changes in classroom behavior that benefited students. And there are other examples around the country, but I think the key to making it work is the consistency of the conversation. Because when you do have these conversations, people do get anxious, they get angry, they have feelings. You stir up a lot of stuff, and you have to give space for those feelings to be processed so that people can get past the emotion to really start to understand the ways in which they are perhaps contributing to the problem and also the ways they can interrupt the cycle. See, that's the clinical side of you coming out. That's not Absolutely. Absolutely. Dr. Hornback? All of that's true, and I... I just told you a story about the way some of it goes on but I don't think it's anywhere near normative and most of it takes place in large metropolitan areas and a lot more of the kind of professional development that Dr. Tatum was referring to um, um, does not take place in um, school districts in which there are in a relative sense, fewer kids of color. And um, I would argue that professional development there, even the, uh, around these issues, um, and conversations around race, um, at least if Dr. Tatum will come and speak and, and be there, um, are just as valuable in a white community in Kansas or Nebraska or Ohio or someplace, as they are in metropolitan Baltimore or or, or Boston, and um, and and yet that doesn't take place. The other thing I wanted to underline that um, Dr. Tatum said is this this issue of doing it more than once and uh, persistence in in that. I mean, you know, any of you that know anything about either teaching or learning, know that repetition is a key. Uh, to getting it, and um, so often we try to inoculate ourselves somehow with just a little bit of something, and think it has taken. And we might even get some of the language down uh, mm. in that framework. And that's the reason that, generally speaking, there are there are fewer inappropriate comments made publicly uh, about race or gender or lots of other things. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the folks have really gotten it, that it's really taken. And so that persistence is really important. It's one of the reasons that this OSI 
four part, five part on December first, presumably six part on January first. I expect to be asked back in ten years to just keep this um, uh, is is so important to keep it in front of all of ourselves constantly. I'd also like to say, I mean, I think that is one of the beauties of this series is that it is repeated, and while you can't guarantee the same audience week after week, you know, hopefully you do have repeat attenders. And um, But one of the things that was really interesting to me when we were doing this work with teachers, we did it in the greater Boston area, and then we did it in western Massachusetts, had some funding uh, to do it in uh, a school district like Northampton and Amherst, Massachusetts, and Holyoke, Massachusetts, which, again, you know, in terms of percentages, relatively small numbers of kids of color, but nonetheless important conversations uh, for all of the students. But one of the things that was really interesting to me, um, we did a little research with the teachers who had been participating and emerged, uh, we used, we were using a train the trainers model. So, you know, we had teachers participating in the workshop and then teaching them to lead the workshops themselves. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, in the greater Boston area, this program continues with people who are, um, you know, experienced it themselves and then became trainers. Uh, We interviewed some of the trainers, you know, teachers who had taken on this professional development role. And one of the things that was really interesting to me was that they, uh, these were all women, all white women, and they talked about how um, energizing the experience was. Mm -hmm. You know, they they kept using this word, you know, it's like one woman described it as like... uh, Rebirth, you know, renewal at midlife, and uh, and energizing was a word that came up over and over again. And I started to think about, well, why would people say this is so energizing? Um, to think, to talk about race, and to engage other people in these conversations about race. And I think it is because we use a lot of energy not talking about race. Mm-hmm. You know that um, that you know it's as though there were an elephant on the stage. And I said, okay, now just imagine it's not there. You'd have to really work at, you know, (laughs) not seeing it, not noticing it, not commenting on it. And I think that the most of us have experiences with racism from our childhood on through our adulthood that we've learned not to notice, but not without some psychic cost. You know, it takes a lot of energy not to notice what's going around you. And when you give people permission to talk about it and to think about it and to engage with others about it, it releases a lot of energy that is now available for productive activity. We're going to keep this discussion going for about another 10 minutes, so I want to remind everybody, uh, for those who have questions, to you know, either write them down or if you've already written them down, to please begin to pass them uh, to the end of the aisle and they'll be picked up so that we can uh, sift through them. Uh, uh, Dr. Tatum, you mentioned that we have uh, an African-American president, I believe. Uh, and so uh, <laughs> if, uh, for both of you, if the president were to, uh, to call you and ask for your counsel on policy change that could you know, just break up the status quo on this issue relative to race in the classrooms, are there, can you, each, of, each of you give maybe one or two things that you would, you would recommend that the president or that the country do in terms of dealing with this issue of race in the classroom? Well, I've heard um, Arne Duncan, the Secretary of Education, speak on a couple of occasions now. And one of the things that he often says is that we know what to do. The question is, do we have the will? Hmm. You know, that in, and, you know, in your book, you say where there's a will, there's a way. Um, in every community, there are schools that we might predict based on the demographics 
high low income children, you know, high poverty schools, uh, difficult family circumstances, all those things, and yet the children are successful. Um, there are examples of that all over the country, you know, a school here, a school there. And if we look at what those best practices are, you could bring them to scale, you could invest in those best practices and see wide-scale improvement if we really had the will to invest in, in that way. In the same way, I think one of the best practices is the kind of professional anti-racist, what I would call anti-racist professional development that we've been talking about. And it seems to me if that is a best practice, we could offer incentives for people to engage in those kinds of best practices. So that would be one Do you have an recommendation. example of an incentive that could be used in this way? Well, I mean, uh, well, Arnie Duncan, I heard, just heard him speak, Secretary Duncan speak in um, Atlanta, and he was talking about the millions, if not billions of dollars that are available, millions, certainly large millions of dollars available to the Department of Education at this time that they're going to be using for discretionary funding. Mm -hmm. Certainly they could direct funds to schools where, to encourage, you know, uh, a school that wanted to take on an Mm anti-racist initiative could be rewarded with extra dollars. I mean, that's certainly a big incentive. Every school needs more dollars. Uh, But there are, I think, lots of ways to encourage um, public-private partnerships and other kinds of things that lead to uh, innovation when we have the will to do it. I think it's more about the will Mm -hmm. than the way. We know what to do. Uh, I think there are actually uh, eight or nine things that have to be done in combination with one another. But if I could just mention a couple of of policy changes um, that I would encourage his leadership, um, and in fact he's taking some of it now, it would be um, A, to um, make sure that um, every three- and four-year-old, especially those who are kids of color, kids who are poor, kids whose first language isn't English, kids with disabilities, um, have a guarantee of a quality, developmentally appropriate early childhood program. Um, it, it, it is the best example that I know of of the point that we know what to do, but we don't do it. We've known that for 40 years, and today there are only two states in the nation, Georgia and Oklahoma, that pretend to guarantee any kind of early childhood program to their four-year-olds. There are none that pretend to guarantee it to their three-year-olds, and that's not because we don't know to do it. Second thing, um, change the compensation and certification systems in our um, states for Um, educators, not just teachers, for educators, um, so that we abandon our um, uh, clinging to uh, the accumulation of degrees and hours and um, um, courses as the path to certification. uh, And in the case of compensation, we add to it how long you live because it's longevity plus credit hours and instead have um, certification on the one hand and um, compensation um, tied to what educators need to know and be able to do to create the learning conditions that um, kids need um, in order to meet 
um, the standards, as they say, uh, that is what kids need to know and be able to do. We're, we're perfectly willing to measure student performance against standards. We're nowhere near as close to measuring superintendents and principals and teachers against um, standards in, um, uh, in that way. But in the final analysis, all of those things, as Dr. Tatum suggested, in my view, really, um, they, they are rooted in whether we, we have the will to do it. Let me just extend this just a little bit. Um, um, there is a chance, I guess, that, that Duncan is, is going to get some of his way because he's put $100 billion on the table, $5 billion of which is, are these discretionary, wholly discretionary funds that Dr. Tatum referred to. Um, the thing that scares me a lot at the moment is, um, and, and, and I'll give you two examples. During August, you saw what ha- began to happen, and I hope it's not going to happen now, began to happen to health care. Uh, because there are a large number of people in this country that are very tightly organized, and they can produce tens of thousands of emails and phone calls in a week's period of time. And if health care gets torpedoed completely, in my view, it's, it's as much because of that as any other single thing that's going on right now. But related to education, there was another little blip on the screen at the same time. Some of you may remember that this president of ours had the audacity to want to speak to the school children of America. (laughs) And what we saw in that week was a gigantic outpouring of sometimes vitriolic uh, response to that. And what worries me about Duncan, what worries me about any time that uh, those of us who um, are clear about what needs to happen with schools, if any of that should actually get traction sometime. And let me assure you, it does not yet have traction, the stuff that really needs to, to happen. If it ever gets traction, I fear that we will see the same thing occur with it that we saw with health care and we don't have our act together. We can't deliver 50,000 emails and phone calls within a brief period of time and until or unless we place ourselves in the position of a focus on the family and we are able to mobilize uh, in a, a similar fashion, we're going to have a very difficult time dro- doing the hardest parts of, um, of the kind of school reform that needs to take place in this country. First, I, I want to really underscore the point about early childhood education. We know that that is very important, and as someone who now lives in Georgia, one of the things that's really problematic, um, even though there is this uh, emphasis on four-year-old education providing um, a state-funded four-year-old uh, education, it is first come, first serve. So that this, you know, again, it is more likely to serve the needs of those who have the resources to get themselves first in line and, you know, be standing out there waiting to sign up and all of that. So um, 
it is still an example of the kids who are most in need not getting the resources um, that, that they need. But one of the things that, um, you know, when you were speaking, David, about the um, vitriolic response to, for example, the president wanting to say a few words of encouragement to school children at the beginning of the school year or the um, incivility surrounding the health care reform, I think we have to really acknowledge that there is this paradigm shift that has taken place or is taking place as a result of the election of an African-American as president. Um, and it is really disconcerting for people. You know, I mean, maybe I'm sounding like a psychologist, which I am. Uh, and <laughs> but, but, you know, I think that when we think about the, what the election of Barack Obama meant or means in a society, and certainly it represents a uh, new narrative. I was at Spelman uh, on the election night, and there was a uh, wonderful pre-election announcement program that took place. A lot of city officials came, and you know, Atlanta is the home of the civil rights movement, and there are a lot of uh, figures, people like uh, civil rights icon Reverend Lowry, who live in Atlanta. And Joseph Lowry, Dr. Lowry, came to speak to the Spelman students about what the election meant to him. Uh, before the announcement of who had won. And one of the things that he said was that he thought it represented the rebirth of America, you know, Barack Obama's election. And I thought that that was a really powerful statement. But if you think about what happens at the time of birth, you have a lot of, you know, pain. <laughs> you know, you have a lot of pain. Um, and that those labor contractions, I think, is what we're seeing in our society. That, you know, we have all grown up watching a particular movie. I'm going to describe that movie, and you'll all recognize it. It's a movie where there are a lot of twists and turns in the plot, but at the end of the day, the white guy, usually blonde, wins. <laughs> and if there is a black guy in the story at all, he's usually eliminated from the plot before the end. <laughs> Right, and so that's when, called postpartum depression. <laughs> right? Well, so but that's the that's the movie we've all seen a million times, and that's the narrative we're all used to. And then you know you have this t- twist and turn of the election, and lo and behold, the black guy wins. You know, it's not supposed to go that way, and that um, change in the narrative is very psychologically disconcerting. Mm-hmm to a lot of people, and uh, I was part of a panel in Atlanta at a diversity conference, and uh, Tim Wise, who was coming here, was one of the panelists, and he said, you know, there's a lot of crazy in the air right now. Mm-hmm. And, and there is, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that craziness is a kind of anxiety that emerges when people's fundamental assumptions have been disrupted. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, every day you get up and see Barack Obama in the, you know, Oval Office, for some people, there's some fundamental assumptions being disrupted. And that that is really generating a lot of anxiety, which plays itself out in the incivility that we're seeing today. And I think the resistance to anything that might further that rebirth that Dr. Larry talked about. Well. As we uh, transition to the Q&A between you and our guests, uh, please join me in the first round of applause for our guests coming and having this conversation.
In this corner, okay, question number one. And just let me say that the, uh, the amount of questions we have far outweigh the amount of time we have to ask and respond to them. So, you know, bear with us as we uh, try to get through as many as we can in the allotted time. Uh, how does one discuss race in all black classrooms when the students have accepted that race is an issue between blacks and whites? I think that um, there are lots of opportunities to talk about race in homogeneous classrooms, whether there are whether they're all white classrooms or all black classrooms. And certainly, black children use racially loaded language. You know, when they tease each other, for example, when someone accuses another kid of quote acting white, mm -hmm. you know, you can interrogate that. Well, what exactly do you mean by that? You know, um, when, and, and if they say, well, because you talk a certain way or you do a certain thing, or, you know, often it's associated in school settings with academically focused behavior. You know, that to me gives a teacher an opportunity to really challenge the assumptions that black kids are making about who's academically successful and who's not, or who has a history of intellectual uh, achievement and who does not. You know, there are lots of ways in which uh, black kids all of us internalize um, stereotypes about people different from ourselves, but also people like ourselves, you know, and whether it's language about so-called, quote, good hair, or whether it's, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, comments about skin color difference, or, you know, quote, acting white. There are many, many naturally occurring uh, opportunities to talk about race in classrooms, regardless of the racial makeup. Let me add a, an interesting story to the point. Um, I, I, it's one I describe in, in the book that I, I just put out. Um, we had a high school in Philadelphia where for a number of years um, it had never graduated more than 15% of the kids um, who entered the ninth grade, you know, four years later. And without going into the technical details of an accountability system that we were able to negotiate with, with the teachers' union there, um, I decided to um, keystone that school, which basically was a, a decision where teachers would have to reapply and so on. And it, it caused gigantic consternation. And much of it... I anticipated. The two sources that I didn't anticipate w was the degree to which the kids and the parents fought back. And I don't know how many times I heard parents and kids say, the educators do as well with us as they can. And what this was describing was even the kids and the parents swallowing the, the, the expectation culture that we set in this country that results in a view that particularly if you're black and you're poor, what can you expect? <laughs> and, but to have this come out of the kids themselves and the parents themselves just underlined in my mind the, the huge importance, not of just having a lesson on, 
you know, what does it mean to be black in an all-black school or whatever. But, but, but uh, just a beginning or including that in in the change that needs to needs to take place. If I could put this in, uh, you know, very specific context, I mean, I think that's one of the things that's powerful about a Spelman experience. You know, when young women come to Spelman, one of the things that they see is 128 years of achievement of black women who look like them. And so any assumptions about what uh, can and cannot be achieved uh, quickly become disrupted because you see people who not only thought about it but did it. And so um, I think that's part of the challenge in so many schools for young black children and other children of color is that they just don't know their history. And uh, what they do know is, you know, reinforces this notion of what you cannot do as opposed to what can be accomplished, even under difficult circumstances. Many of these... It's okay to applaud. It's it's fine. Many of these questions have like a part A, B, C, <laughs> D, E, and F, right? Uh, and obviously we can't go through, uh, you know, in that fashion. But I do think this one is particularly relevant, and you'll know why when I read it. Uh, does every conversation on racism have to hang near segregation or desegregation? Wouldn't it be better to bring the white suburban students to the black urban schools just accept? Just ex- hold your applause, applause please. Come on. Uh, just accept that we keep segregation and work to create equal access. This question is from a Spelman alum who went to segregated schools in suburban Georgia. Desegregated schools. I'm sorry, desegregated schools. Be known. <laughs> Well, only only to say that um, th- the answer is clearly yes to the question. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there there is nothing other than the underlying uh, set of expectations and racism itself that resulted uh, over those years in uh, African American kids having to make the bus ride mm-hmm. um, uh, way more often than than the um, than the white kids did. Um, and the reason for it, I guess, is obvious. Um, I mean, you know, if they want to go to school with us, let them ride the bus. Is the is the attitude that I think was taken in in policy terms? You know, it's a very complicated question from a number of perspectives because, you know, if you look at the history of black education in the South pre-Brown, there were African American schools where, that were outperforming white schools. Um, where black kids were outperforming and uh, and at the time of integration, it was often those high-performing black schools that were closed and a lot of uh, high-performing African-American teachers displaced in the process of school desegregation. Um, and so it's not simply about changing the makeup of the school, you know, and we can also talk about the fact that in schools that have been quote, desegregated, you often see, and I, I know this is familiar to you, David, in terms of tracking, you often see resegregation within the school, you know, so that the school is racially mixed, but, you know, the black kids are in the lower level sections and the white kids are tracked in the honor or the AP classes. Um, so that the issue, from my point of view, is not necessarily who's sitting next to who. 
the issue is, you know, who is being in high expectations for every kid. You know, are we communicating um, and are we investing, providing the resources for uh, excellence in every school? I know that um, we were asked earlier, David and I were asked earlier uh, it, off, offline uh, about, you know, what does it mean to have an excellent school? Can you have an excellent school that is not racially integrated? And the truth is, of course you can. I mean, of course you can have an excellent school from the point of view of students learning to read, write, compute, you know, quantitative literacy, et cetera. There is, however, an important value, I think, that we should acknowledge in a global society to learn how to connect with people different from yourself. And when I make that point, sometimes people will ask me, well, you know, isn't that a contradiction for you to say that that's important and then also to be president of a historically black college? Um, <laughs> And I don't think it's a contradiction because I think that when we talk about college, for example, whether you're talking about a historically black college or a women's college, um, to say that you're going to spend four years of your life focused on learning about yourself is not to say you're never going to learn about anybody else. Um, but certainly we do need to create opportunities whether in the context of a Spelman or in the context of elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, for young people to learn how to connect and be effectively engaged with people who are different from themselves. And that might mean you're doing it virtually. It might mean you're doing it through technology. I mean, there are lots of different ways to make that happen. But it does seem to me that we have to acknowledge we live in a global society. And, you know, even if your neighborhood doesn't look that way, your adult life is going to be that way, and you need to figure it out. Okay. What are the, the challenges that face black principals and teachers in mostly white schools, also white teachers and principals in mainly black schools? Each face special challenges because of what brings us together here tonight. Uh, there are racial issues, racial identity issues that are present. There are going to be all, all of the stereotypes that we've been talking about that we bring to life each day are going to be present in those circumstances. And part of the response to that was the stuff we were talking about a little bit earlier around professional development. Some of that can can help. Uh, but the, the big thing that I would emphasize, uh, whichever direction that goes, is how important it is for the white and the black principal to be a good principal. Uh, mm. It goes to the issue of excellence that uh, Dr. Tatum was referring to. And, um, uh, and I think that, um, uh, that that's got to remain the centerpiece uh, in, in that process. Now, it may well be that the white principal in the black school and the black principal in the white school um, may need somebody to have their back at one time or another as they navigate uh, the shoals of stereotype that they're going to um, they're going to encounter, um, and um, it may be that each needs some special professional development at at certain <laughs> times, um, but each can also be very successful in those roles if, in fact, they bring the idea of excellence to the job and translate that, again, not just rhetorically, but into the way in which 
um, they conduct um, the classes. The, the kids of the opposite race are going to figure out relatively quickly if the uh, principal uh, is real um, that, in fact, the, the principal uh, is figuring out, breaking the rules if necessary, uh, uh, coming to the defense of the kids, going to the homes. Uh, I mean, there are a whole lot of strategies. Um, um, my my wife's roommate from college, uh, I think it's the only person I've ever known literally to do this, but I've encouraged lots of principals to do some of it. When she became a principal for the first time in Fresno, and uh, she was Mexican-American, and the school that she was the principal of was largely Mexican-American. But she came the summer before, and she literally visited every single home in that um, mm. that that area. And um, the message that that sent to those parents about what she was going to do and how she was going to respect their children and how they were going to respect the home life of the kids and how she didn't fall into the pattern that so many do who start talking about how parents of poor kids don't love them and all that stuff. They knew way down deep that that, that wasn't that wasn't going to happen. Um, one of one of my sons is the uh, principal of uh, one of, if not the only, majority Latino um, school in Baltimore. And he is their first um, he will argue with me calling him fluent, but uh, <laughs> um, fluent Spanish-speaking uh, principal. And the difference in those early days when he would walk up to a parent and a teacher who were trying to get through the language barriers that the two had and to say to them, you know, can I help? Um, and say it in Spanish. More than one of those parents looked at him like, you know, where'd you come from? Nobody, <laughs> nobody in authority has ever been able to speak Spanish around here. Uh, and so those kinds of differences are huge, and, and the, the, the color is going to make less of a difference with excellence being the leading edge of the intention. Did you want to respond to that? Um, I want to just piggyback on the comments that have been made to say that sometimes I talk about what is important in school environments are the ABCs. And the A stands for affirming identity, the B stands for building community, the C stands for cultivating leadership. And I think the example that you just gave uh, of your son speaking in Spanish to Spanish-speaking parents or trying to help in that way is a big A in terms of affirming identity. In terms, and, and B, too, building community. I mean, and we could also say cultivating leadership. But the A, when I say affirming identity, all of us want to see ourselves reflected in environments in positive ways. And, you know, one of the easiest way to make this point is if, imagine there was a photographer on the stage taking a picture of the audience, and at the end of the night, everybody got a copy of the photograph. What is the first thing you would do when you got your picture? You're going to look for yourself in it, you know. You're not going to say, oh, where is Beverly Tatum? You know? <laughs> you know, unless you are Beverly Tatum. You know, the first thing you're going to do is look for yourself. And when you are in environments, in school environments, you're looking to see yourself reflected in that environment in a positive way. And for a principal to affirm 
the important aspect of your identity, in this case language, by using it in a positive way is a, you know, a very powerful way of affirming identity for the Spanish speakers in the environment. The B, building community, is also embodied there because people are more likely to feel like they want to be part of that community, if uh, be involved in the school, come on school nights or whatever, if they feel like it's going to be a welcoming environment. And so the B is part of that. And then the C, cultivating leadership, is really about modeling it. I mean, for the teacher mm. who's in that interaction, the principal is really modeling um, how to be a leader in a diverse setting in a way that she can or he can begin to emulate. And I think whatever setting we're in, we can ask ourselves, you know, how am I affirming the people who are here? Who's, who's missing from this picture? Mm. You know, and how can I begin to make sure that who is usually missing is not missing now? And how can we create a more welcoming environment where everyone feels included? And then how do we pass on those leadership skills to the next generation? Early on when we began, uh, and Diana uh, Morris uh, gave her introduction, she talked about the uh, Baltimore City school system being uh, you know, overwhelmingly populated by uh, African-American students. And although this question was not directed at Diana, it does speak to the, the issue that she raised. And the question is, what do you think would be a highly effective strategy to integrate the schools? There probably isn't one. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know enough about Baltimore, but, you know, sometimes it becomes logistically not possible. You know, if you've got um, a largely black population uh, and there's, no, you know, there may not be enough other kids to effectively integrate the schools. But that doesn't mean the schools can't be excellent. I, I would just re reaffirm the idea that the single best way to integrate the schools in Baltimore as far as they can be integrated with all of those caveats um, is uh, to have every three-year-old have early childhood education and change the certification and compensation system and do the kind of professional development we've been talking about. I mean, again, it's, it is excellence. Every school, every high school, every zoned high school in Baltimore ought to be a city and a poly and a school for the arts, and we ought not to... And... And, and I'm very enthusiastic ab about them, although a little more for City than for Polly. Uh, uh, <laughs> April. <laughs> uh, but, but, but that's an example of, of, I mean, Edmondson and Southern and all these other places in Baltimore uh, have the capability, the capacity the, to create the learning conditions in which... Uh, Kids there uh, can can think about um, the same kinds of things that City and Poly graduates do. Western, yes, and Western too. <laughs> Absolutely. What else did I forget? <laughs> Let me use my uh, moderator's privilege to ask the question that's uh, that's kind of tugging at me, and this is in respect to what's uh, what's been happening recently in, in Atlanta and the, uh, the change in policy um, with respect to the dress code at Morehouse. And how does that play out 
uh, and what we are challenged with in terms of our male students and, you know, how does that play out in race in terms of how they feel about themselves and having a policy uh, that changes the way in which they dress uh, when it, it plays into their culture to some extent? Well, culture is um, what's popular and what's culture are not necessarily the same thing. Mm. So let me just begin mm. by, that, by saying that, and I don't mean to... Um, uh, dismiss, you know, sort of the way culture evolves and all of that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when... Um, so, let me just say... <laughs> <laughs> so, let me just say that uh, my colleague, uh, President Franklin, who's mm-hmm. president of Morehouse College, for those of you not familiar with Atlanta, Spelman College and Morehouse College are right next door to each other, literally. My driveway ends there, their driveway starts there. Um, and so, you know, the young men from Morehouse are regular visitors to Spelman College and vice versa. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I think that um, Dr. Franklin often talks about what he refers to as the five wells. I call them the five wells. These are the characteristics that, uh, you know, of the Renaissance men that Morehouse is trying to educate. And those five wells are to be uh, well-read, well-traveled, well-dressed, well-spoken, and well-balanced. And uh, I think that the goal of, you know, young people apply to Morehouse because they want what they think Morehouse will deliver for them. You know, they want to be part of the, you know, Morehouse male legacy. They want educational opportunities post-graduation. They want employment opportunities post-graduation. The same can be said for young women who choose to come to Spelman. They want, you know, they've met Spelman women that they admire and they want to be like them. Well, there's a process, right? And that process includes pulling up your pants. You know, that process includes, you know, um, it, it, it includes uh, carrying yourself in a certain way and learning how to do that, you know, and recognizing that students who choose to come may not have necessarily come with that in mind. They had an end result in mind, but there's a, you know, there's a journey, right? And so when Dr. Franklin describes that uh, journey, he is trying to say, you know, there's some things that you will need to do in order to get to this end result. And so, you know, do you want the end or not? Uh, that, I mean, I think that that's really what he's trying to speak to. You know, I, we had to pull the plug on something that was happening at um, Spelman. So there was a group of uh, students, it was a Morehouse Spelman production, and they were putting on a... Um, social event. And that social event was being advertised in a particular way that was not uh, in keeping with what we'd like to see happen. Let me just say that. Um, you know, so... Tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was... You know, so the, 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 a group of students were planning a social event and it was, you know, sort of the Mr. and Ms. Senior class or something like that. And, you know, they were encouraging people to come. Uh, Initially, this was the idea, you know, sort of representing figures from, uh, you know, hip-hop culture. And it was, and some of the advertising was a little risque. 
And, uh, and actually, some, of, some alums contacted me and said, Dr. Tatum, are you aware you know, <laughs> of you know, what is being advertised about this event? And when we became aware, the, the, student, you know, the dean of students met with the students who were organizing it and asked them, is this really how you want to represent yourself? Let's right. think about that. They thought about it, and they canceled their event. You know, one might ask, well, why choose Lil' Kim when you could be Michelle Obama? Hmm. You know what I mean? That there are different images that one can choose. And so the question is, um, you know, we all have a range of cultural choices, and so which ones reinforce how we want to define ourselves positively and which ones don't? So, you know, I appreciate that I can look back on my own college experience and recognize that there were probably times when I was pushing the boundaries. You know, we all <laughs> could imagine that about ourselves. And at the same time, I think it is important for adults in the environment to suggest that, you know, there are some boundaries and, uh, and that that's part of the learning process. Dr. Hornbeck, I'm assuming you don't want to touch that. I don't know about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in the uh, like 90 seconds we have remaining, let me offer each of you uh, an opportunity to, to share a closing statement uh, and that you can reflect on and share with us as we, uh, we end the evening. You know, my closing statement is simply this. There are, there's a lot to do as has been pointed out. There's a lot to do in terms of education. There's a lot to do in terms of a number of social issues in our society that need addressing. And race is woven through all of them. And we can't solve those problems if we can't talk about race. So it really becomes important to be able to engage in the dialogue. So I want to reinforce what has already been said, just the importance and the value of bringing this very diverse audience together. Uh, I know the audience has been in kind of a listening mode, but it, I hope that uh, upon the end of the evening that the conversation continues in the lives of those who've been here, sharing what you've heard, whether you agree or disagree, but engaging in the dialogue, because at the end of the day, dialogue does lead to productive action, and that's really what we need is productive action. I can't improve on leaving it um, at the action stage. Um, don't just think about it. Don't just read about it. Um, don't even just talk about it. While all those things are important, um, go away from here tonight, I hope, uh, thinking of one more place, whether it's your church or your civic club or your community association, wherever it is, where you can go and be the provocateur of a conversation and think of one more place in one of the issues we've talked about, education, the environment, health, employment, housing, any of them, where you resolve uh, to reaffirm an activist role um, and begin even more than any of us has uh, to see the actions that need to be taken there, at least in part through that lens of race, because race does impact in a significant way every single one of, 
of those issues and help build a movement or to rebuild a movement that insists that the hope that many of us in this room went to the polls with a year ago, day after tomorrow, Uh can be reaffirmed in all the little ways and big ways that each of us has the power and capacity and access to do. Just let me uh, thank you all for coming out and spending time with us. Please join me in thanking Diana Morris and the team at OSI for having the audacity to talk about race in the classroom. Well, I want to, first of all, thank all of you, and I see so many familiar faces. And so in that idea of persistence, I hope that you persist in coming back to all these sessions because this is a kind of community, too, that's really important to build. So we really appreciate that. We have, thanks to all of you, probably just hundreds of questions that we didn't get to. But we think they are important questions. So we are actually going to use our blog which is www.audaciousideas.org, as a place to put those questions out and really let all of us actively continue this conversation. So please go to the blog, audaciousideas.org, and continue this conversation there. I think it's a really important one, and uh, we'll try to provoke... Uh, as, as David suggested, that all of us take action. One more uh, round of applause for these yeah. wonderful speakers. And thanks, of course, to Joe Jones for being uh, a very good moderator. <laughs>